Hey everyone, before we begin today's show, just a quick reminder that Michael and Us has a lot more content available at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. We post an extra episode there every week along with bonus content, including though not limited to interviews that I do in my day job, a recent highlight being my conversation with the author and science fiction writer Cory Doctorow, with whom I discussed Bill Gates. Recent Patreon episodes include an episode on Operation Coffee Cup and the LP once recorded by Ronald Reagan attacking socialized medicine, and a crossover episode with the Real Politic podcast in which we discuss the Bruce Springsteen Barack Obama collab Renegades, a podcast I hear is almost as popular as ours. You'll also get access to our full archive of well over a hundred past episodes. So if you enjoy the free shows and want to hear more, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash michaelandus. We're very grateful to be able to partner with Jacobin Radio, so please don't miss other great podcasts on the Jacobin Network, like the recently launched Primer, a labor podcast about Amazon hosted by my colleague Alex Press. Now without further ado, on with this week's free episode of Michael and Us. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. I got my second vax earlier today. I'm sure you probably saw the press conference I gave <laughs> outside the clinic. Well, I actually couldn't hear the TV because the jubilation of the crowds on the, in the street uh, actually drowned it out. That's right, folks. Lock up your girlfriends. I'm fully vaxxed now. And I gotta say, everyone says that this second shot is really bad. And I don't know how much of this is psychosomatic. When we started recording, I did feel a little bit dizzy a little bit lightheaded. Certainly my arm is very sore. Uh, I don't know how much of that is just me kind of like playing into the role of being somebody who's got a second shot. But I don't know. We'll see. Well, my first one wasn't too bad. I just remember my arm hurting a lot. And I haven't gotten the second one yet. But from from what I hear, just anecdotally, it tends to be a, tends to be a bit worse than the first one. I had a story I wanted to share off the top um, that's related to a recent piece of news that when I first saw it on Twitter, I just assumed it was a joke. The backstory to this is that uh, a few years ago, I guess back in 2016, uh, I spoke at a youth conference that was hosted by the Canadian Labour Congress, which is Canada's big national federation of trade unions. Uh, Basically, after I'd finished, uh, the president of uh, the CLC, a guy by the name of Hassan Youssef, you know, as I was stepping off the stage, he told the delegates in the room, this was the last event for the day, but they needed to be, uh, you know, back in their seats by I think it was 8am tomorrow because it a very special guest. Now, uh, I, I wasn't there for the next day of the conference, you know, I went home, but when I was on the train, it emerged that the special guest that, uh, that Hassan Youssef had been touting was none other than Justin Trudeau, who was then a pretty fresh commodity. I think he, you know, the, the election was in November of 2015. And this was just some months into 2016. So, you know, Hassan Youssef, I guess thought he'd scored some great coup like this was a youth convention and so I guess he thought all these delegates like were just gonna be like absolutely overjoyed just like the mere sight of the celebrity prime minister people were gonna think it was really cool I think about half the room turned their backs uh, in disgust. It was very awkward for Youssef. Um, I did feel bad for the hosts who had interviewed me on stage the day before because, I mean, you know, it wasn't their fault. They were just doing their jobs. They had to, like, awkwardly interview Justin Trudeau uh, with, like, half the room turning their backs. Anyway, you know, a fair number of people have been critical of Hassan Youssef's approach to, you know, the presidency of the CLC, which has been, you know, he's kind of regularly... I guess, touted his access to the federal government. And this has been kind of his his strategy. We talked about, we've talked on previous episodes about the WE scandal. 
And, you know, after that, Bill Morneau, the uh, finance minister, is originally a guy from Bay Street, guy by the name of Bill Morneau. You know, he, he resigned and, you know, he said it was just, you know, to spend more time in his, you know, 10 French villas or whatever it was. But, um, you know, everybody knew he was going because of the scandal. And he, he started running for a position on the OECD. I'm not sure, you know, what the process was for him running for that role. But Hassan Youssef uh, started openly campaigning. Like he started uh, boosting Bill Morneau, this like former Bay Street finance minister, and his campaign for this role on the OECD. So that's an example of the kind of approach that he brought to that job, which I think many people rightly think uh, demands a much more kind of militant and adversarial approach than that. Anyway, Youssef stepped down as, as uh, head of the Canadian Labor Congress this week. And when I saw the news that he'd been appointed to the Senate about a day later, <laughs> maybe it was two days later, I saw that on Twitter and I just assumed it was a joke. And then my, my girlfriend confirmed for me that, you know, she's like, have you heard the Hassan Youssef news? It's like, that's real? Can, can you uh, briefly just tell the abroad <laughs> listeners what the Canadian Senate is and how it differs from the American? Senate. Well, you can see exactly where my mind is going because you know, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion right now for obvious reasons. You know, we've talked a lot about the American Senate, what a what an you know anti-democratic body it is, what an unrepresentative body it is, uh, the fact that there's this you know filibuster that's you know a relic in many ways of the Jim Crow era, specifically designed to hold back you know mass popular democracy. The U.S. Senate's really bad, uh, but let me tell you a thing or two about the Canadian Senate. So. <laughs> the Canadian Senate is not an elected body, but it does have the power to to block legislation. So it's it's not an unimportant body. I mean, I feel like it's popular reputation. People don't think about the Senate every day, but if, if they do think about it, you know, it's pretty much as like something synonymous with just corruption and patronage and things like that. And really since its inception, you know, it has been an elitist institution in which, you know, people who do favors for prime ministers, you know, get get put. And if you have a job there, I mean, this is these are jobs for life, you know. I mean, in theory, I guess you hold them till you're 75. They're incredibly easy. You know, you don't have to work that much. They, they have a huge salary, tons of benefits, travel expenses, all kinds of things like that. And you can't be removed. Well, a few years ago, Justin Trudeau reformed the Senate by uh, taking away the party affiliations of all the senators so that they would no longer be swayed by partisan loyalty. They would be able to better serve the people of Canada. Right. So, I mean, that was the spin anyway. But and, and you know, I guess that sort of jibed with what some people think the Senate should be or can be which is let's just put like smart people who don't have partisan affiliation in these roles and that'll make the body you know functional or whatever very much something in keeping with i think a liberal idea of non-partisan non-political expertise and like non-ideological you know quote-unquote evidence-based decision making or whatever anyway it doesn't matter since that was all for show i mean hassan youssef's appointment is clear evidence of that i mean this guy i i suppose the liberals will spin it as you know hey we appointed a trade unionist to the senate but i mean it's clearly you know for for services rendered and so it's in you know a grand tradition of people being rewarded with a senate seat which is sort of like the ultimate prize that can be bequeathed on a member of the Canadian establishment or or an aspiring one. Under the previous government, some of the appointments to the Senate, I mean, basically, I mean, defied belief. I mean, you had people who had been defeated as conservative candidates in elections, then getting appointed to the Senate, quitting their jobs in the Senate to run again, losing and being reappointed. John A. MacDonald, who, of course, has uh, been in the news recently, you know, back in 1864, he made the case for this body uh, by telling delegates 
at a conference in Quebec, this was a pre-Confederation, he said, we must protect the rights of minorities and the rich are always fewer in number than the poor. So there's a whole, you know, ignoble history of this institution. I mean, we could do multiple episodes on all of the scandals that have afflicted various senators and uh, various prime ministers who've done appointments to the Senate. I'm pleased to know at least one person, one, one person that I know of who has turned down a Senate appointment, which I think very few people have. You know, the Senate... Uh, you, you, you can say it was me. <laughs> it just didn't fit in with my schedule, you know? I've got two, <laughs> two, podcasts. two podcasts. right. Yeah. Uh, the Senate, kind of like Britain's House of Lords, is one of those things that has a pretty incredible record of absorbing erstwhile critics, you know, who start talking about, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting older and I realize that real change comes from the inside or, or whatever. One of my favorite anecdotes about the Senate is that back in the early 1980s, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who he wasn't the, the Soviet premier yet, he was uh, just a member of the Politburo. He was given a tour of Parliament Hill by a guy named Eugene Whalen, who was um, the agriculture minister. He was apparently quite bemused when Whalen explained the Senate to him, and he, and he asked how citizens of a democratic country could put up with legislators that were appointed for life, which uh, was not a bad question. Anyway, the Canadian Senate is, you know, one of those things that lots of people have tried to reform or said they want to reform. It has a certain buy-in from a certain type of wonk who, who loves the intricacies of kind of Senate subcommittees and you know, who likes the idea of kind of nonpartisan expertise, you know, acting as a check on, I don't know, the ideological excess of the House of Commons or whatever. You also have voices on the right who uh, counter all of that with the idea of an elected Senate, which sounds intuitively quite good until you realize that the goal is actually to create something like the American Senate, which is, you know, a check on the House of Commons and overrepresents certain regions of the country that are disproportionately conservative and that kind of thing. Anyway, the Senate is very difficult to abolish, but I've always been a pretty staunch abolitionist. And I hope I live to see the day when the institution is abolished for good. We have some other Canadian news for this episode on a much more serious note. In Canada, over the last few weeks, we've been having, I don't know if reckoning is the right word, because who knows what will come from it, but we've been certainly having a a national dialogue about the legacy of the Indian residential school system. We discussed it a bit on a recent episode, but for listeners abroad who didn't hear that or need a refresher, Canada, for much of its history, operated a system of mandatory boarding schools for First Nations children, which has been described accurately, I believe, as a sort of cultural genocide. The children at these schools were taken from their families and communities, forbidden from speaking their native languages and discussing their own histories and cultures. Uh, They were subjected to unspeakable emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, And there were hundreds of these schools at their peak, and the last school didn't close until 1996. So the schools are a subject of very recent memory. This subject has been under discussion in Canada a lot these past weeks because of the recent discovery of mass graves and unmarked graves on the former sites of some of these schools. And this week brought the announcement that an estimated 751 unmarked graves were found at a rural Saskatchewan location about 140 kilometers east of Regina. That's 751 unmarked graves. This school, like so many of them, was overseen by the Catholic Church. The Cowessess First Nation took over the cemetery from the church in the 1970s. It's been alleged that these graves once were marked and that the church likely removed them from the grave sites in the 1960s. 
this discovery has amplified, of course, the recent discourse about Canadian history, which has also been amplified by the build-up to Canada Day, which takes place on July 1st in Canada. There have been a lot of calls to uh, cancel Canada Day, to not have the usual festivities around it. Uh, It's also spurred, I think, some necessary discussion about the enormous role that the Catholic Church has played in this genocide, and questions about what acts of truth and reconciliation from the Church would be adequate. So a quick word about the Catholic Church, in which I, your humble host, was baptized as a young man. The Church is tax-exempt in Canada. It also has a separate Catholic school board, which in the province of Ontario at least, and I think elsewhere too, is fully funded by the province. And I don't think anybody can really provide a good or logical reason for why that is. And funnily enough, I know that Luke remembers this well, the current mayor of Toronto, John Tory, previously, about a decade ago, ran for Premier of Ontario as leader of the Conservative Party, and he really fumbled the campaign because he said that, well, you know, if we have this Catholic school board, uh, every religion really ought to have its own uh, special school that's publicly funded. And I don't think John Tory really intended this to be the centerpiece of his campaign. I think it was just one of many things he said. A, a man a man with a tremendous adeptness for losing elections. And by the way, that was one of about four provincial elections from which the Conservative Party grasped defeat from the jaws of victory. The incumbent Liberal Party was able to turn that election into a sort of referendum on whether we, the taxpayers, should be funding all of these different religious schools that are separate from the good old regular public school system. And surprise, surprise, an overwhelming majority of people were against the idea of having all of these separate publicly funded religious schools, you know. And uh, they would be very forcefully against the idea of a publicly funded, antiquated Catholic school board, too, had it not been grandfathered in from a previous time. I mean, I don't know. I think perhaps the Catholic school board in Ontario is just seen as one of those, like, immovable rocks that's been around forever. But hopefully there will be some discussion about its place in our province. Well, there's an article I'm quite keen to discuss uh, that was just published uh, today, I believe, in the New Statesman. It's by uh, Richard Seymour, really great uh, British writer who I suspect many listeners will be familiar with. It's called How Postmodernism Became the Universal Scapegoat of the Era. I just want to read a bit from the opening graphs here. In the slew of rightist culture war bogeymen, from cultural Marxism to critical race theory, one of the most surprising candidates for obloquy is postmodernism. In December 2020, the Women and Equalities Minister, Liz Truss, bewailed postmodernist philosophy pioneered by Foucault that put societal power structures and labels ahead of individuals in their endeavors. That was a quote from Trust. The malign influence of postmodernism, she suggested, had reached directly into working-class Leeds communities in the 1980s, where children were taught about racism and sexism, but not how to read and write. Remarkably, then, the putative failures of education policy, above all the supposed failings of local authorities, were down to the 20th century French philosopher Michel Foucault. 
To an extraordinary degree, postmodernism has become the universal scapegoat of the era, the bete noir of resistance liberals, reactionaries, new atheists, and trademark defenders of reason. The irrational and incoherent fear of the POMO, or pomophobia, has claimed minds from across the political spectrum. According to the American literary critic Michiko Kakatani, postmodernism is responsible for the assault on knowledge and reason that allowed Donald Trump to lie his way into the White House. The journalist Matthew Dancona claims that postmodern intellectuals have encouraged a toxic relativism by treating everything as a social construct and so allowing fake news to thrive. YouTuber and clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson argues that postmodernism is the new skin for an old Marxism that seeks to subvert the West. In Peterson's account, postmodernism is essentially the claim that all truths are relative, and all truth claims are instruments of the struggle for power. Peterson calls this bastardized Nietzscheanism the resentful pathology of Marxism. For new atheists such as Richard Dawkins, postmodernism is an insidious assault on reason and the scientific method led by academic careerists. There was even a time, now past, when muscular liberals such as Christopher Hitchens and David Aronovich blamed postmodern relativism for the left's apparent softness towards dictators and Islamic fundamentalism manifest in its opposition to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. While postmodernism peaked as a cultural trend in the early 1990s, it has now come to symbolize something corrosive, insidious, and threatening to the social order. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'd encourage people to check it out. It's very good. Uh, Richard goes on to offer, you know, a history of this term and kind of gets into just how vague uh, what it's actually describing is. Michel Foucault certainly didn't pioneer it. He complicates it even further by pointing out that in many ways, postmodernism is kind of a descriptive term. It's often describing certain phenomenon. And, you know, it's also a very, uh, in many ways, a very strange candidate for the rights kind of, the right in particular's chosen attack on it is pretty incongruous. You know, when Jordan Peterson started throwing around the, uh, the phrase postmodern neo-Marxism, you know, I think a lot of us on the left, what we heard was a pretty contradictory phrase. I mean, postmodernism in the kind of broadest and most colloquial sense is all about the kind of collapse or perhaps the rejection of, of grand narratives of kind of structural explanations for things. So attaching it to Marxism, which is at least often or most often associated with kind of structural accounts for things, uh, is a very strange maneuver. But, you know, I've, I've always been interested in this tendency on the right um, to create these kind of grand scapegoats, these kind of um, all-encompassing bogeymen. There's a remarkably effective message discipline here that I almost admire, given its incoherence. I don't, I don't know if the left has anything or has ever created anything uh, that so effectively functions as a kind of tabula rasa on which to project every kind of political or cultural grievance imaginable. They've cycled through a few of these uh, in our lifetimes. I mean, right now in the sort of a present phase of the U.S. culture war, you know, critical race theory, which Richard Seymour mentions, is obviously another example of this. For the longest time, it was cultural Marxism. They're also very good at doing it with certain figures. You know, I think of uh, of, our, of the various films by Dinesh D'Souza we've covered on this podcast and his pretty farcical efforts to c connect like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama with Saul Alinsky, a guy who probably most people would never have heard of if it wasn't for people like Dinesh D'Souza. Okay, can I just say that Marxism calls for the abolishment of the traditional relationship between master and serf? And those are very grand narratives that have 
sustained us throughout history <laughs> and therefore well, <laughs> therefore marxism is postmodern i mean i mean you joke but i mean that's about what's really going on here the right cycles through their own kind of grand narratives about you know what's ailing our present but in many ways every single one of these is just a kind of rebranding of the same argument that conservatives have really had since you know modern conservatism was invented after 1789 there's a deep-seated idea that social order social cohesion that both the natural order and the basic cohesion of society depend on these natural hierarchies and that any effort to combat or undo any of those hierarchies is going to have absolutely catastrophic consequences you know i actually have my own objections or issues with some of the critical impulses and kind of discourses that are that you might broadly associate with postmodernism I think sometimes the the impulse to deconstruct things or to expose the kind of radical subjectivity behind certain narratives or or whatever can have something of a paralyzing effect. You know, one one example that comes to mind is an old book review by the historian Tony Judd. Um, Judd was reviewing a book. I, f- I forget the the title of the book or the author, but basically the the thesis of the book revolved around the idea that the Balkans is a sort of Western European concept. It's a kind of exoticized cultural construct that's you know created by Western European literature and that kind of thing. There's probably something to that idea, and and uh, Judd, from my memory, you know, kind of gives it his due. But you know, he, as he points out, if you take this critique far enough, you know, you're kind of left asking, well, wait. So what are these cultures uh, actually that are being described here. It's all well and good to say that the kind of hegemonic idea of them is skewed in some way or that it was constructed from a distant metropole and is kind of removed from the realities it's describing. But at the end of the day, these societies and cultures and languages and music and everything we associate with what are broadly thought of as the Balkans are pretty interesting and wonderful. And merely deconstructing an idea of them doesn't really do justice to that. Well, what if I told you that we're living in a vibrant global marketplace where the silos that separate us are breaking down and innovation is finally able to prosper? (laughs) Anyway, absolutely nothing about the rights offensive against uh, quote unquote postmodernism has anything to do with what I just said. And I eagerly await the next catch all bogeyman on which every conservative grievance gets projected. Can't wait to see what it is. Speaking of postmodern (laughs) neo-Marxism, I am now going to ask you to take a look at the system a little differently. Yes, we are going to look at a film that takes the status quo and rocks it. We're talking about 2010's Freakonomics, the movie, based on the best-selling book by Stephen Dubner and rogue economist Stephen Levitt. My entire academic life has been devoted to figuring out tricky ways to get at causality. We kind of say, what if this thing that everybody thinks is so really isn't so? It sounds ridiculous, but you see it all the time, people trying to fight against or build up something that they're sure is connected to something else, which it turns out just isn't. The closest thing to a worldview in Freakonomics is that incentives matter. And if you can figure out what people's incentives are, you have a good chance of guessing how they're going to behave. They say money doesn't buy happiness. Want to bet? By the way, uh, Rogue Economist, which is how he's described in the opening text of the film, got a big laugh out of me. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what that means. Like, does he does he do hit and run economisting? 
<laughs> but you know, I watched this movie. I saw this movie about 10 years ago when I was a uh, gigging Toronto film critic writing articles for, oh, let's see, zero dollars for the local Toronto alt weeklies. And my reaction to it now is much the same as it was then, which is that when it ended, I still was not certain what the overarching thesis was <laughs> and what the term freakonomics is supposed to mean. It's a recurring theme on the on the show that, you know, we talk about these movies that are basically like politics, what a concept movies. You know, these films that kind of a assume this wide-eyed posture towards politics as such, but don't really have any firm perspective on them. I think this movie might alternatively be called Markets and Incentives, What a Concept. I didn't particularly enjoy it, although I do think I understand its appeal. I wasn't really there to experience, or at least I didn't experience the whole Freakonomics phenomenon when it was still underway. But if nothing else, I do, I do think I understand how these guys sold so many copies of their book based on this formula. Because it is just this kind of perfect amorphous fusion of sort of, you know, economic ideas about incentives and markets and sort of pop psychology, pop culture, with a soft pretense, at least, to be diagnosing problems and, and potentially posing solutions. What the Freakonomics method actually gives you, at least based on this film is all pretty vague, but it is a kind of formula that you can plug in these sort of endless, you know, social science experiments uh, in a way that allows you to talk about various things that at least discreetly can be interesting. You know, for example, I, I enjoyed the section in this film on sumo wrestling. Yeah, no, that I thought was far and away the best section and an otherwise pretty lamentable movie. Don't you think that there's something in here, though, that's sort of nefarious about the way that it, like Malcolm Gladwell, another then-popular pop theorist, takes this kind of ambient dissatisfaction with the system and then uh, sort of harnesses it and says, uh, well, uh, what what if the bad things are actually good? Or, you know, like, what if, what if the good things have unintended consequences <laughs> and then uses some very like vague and mushy and I think quite questionable pseudo math and pseudoscience to make its arguments. Yeah. And you know, the, the whole thing of course has this pretense. Um, you know, there's a, a, one of them says at the end of the film, we seek the truth. We don't have an agenda. You know, we give people permission to ask a different kind of question. Uh, my impression of, of these two guys is that they're personally pretty innocuous, you know. I do think the kind of posture they're striking and which and which you just described is something that you see in a lot of decidedly less innocuous contexts. It's very easy to use social science and credentialed expertise and the sort of mystical discipline of economics to make some pretty bad arguments and also to obscure, you know, you can use numbers and data and quantitative arguments to obscure a lot of pretty dubious qualitative assumptions, pretty dubious moral judgments. And I think there are far worse culprits in any of that than this film, but you can sometimes see them uh, flying pretty close to it in uh, in some of these vignettes, uh, which the film has four of. Structured around this framing device of the journalist Stephen Dubner and the economist Stephen Levitt having these sort of playful discussions scored to twee twinkly xylophone music uh, you know for example the movie opens with a discussion where they talk about real estate and you know like let's say you're going to sell your house for three hundred thousand dollars and then you've got an offer for two hundred and ninety thousand dollars well your real estate agent is going to take that offer because the ten thousand dollars that you lose is going to be a lot less than the amount of money that he loses and it's maybe not worth his time to keep the house on sale for an 
extra week just to get that $10,000 for you, etc, etc. You know, like kind of obvious stuff that doesn't quite rise to the level of being a brain teaser. Yeah, I mean, I think this movie should kind of be seen in the context of a society that, uh, and actually this oddly resonates with what we were just talking about, but an intellectual culture that's sort of given up on the idea of totalizing theories, or at least all totalizing theories which are which are not neoliberalism, which, you know, is so totalizing, you know, uh, most people don't even think about it as a theory. It, it just It just represents reality. So, you know, you can no longer make these big qualitative inquiries, but what you can do is think about, you know, how markets and incentives and behavioral psychology and things like that apply to kind of discrete social or political or cultural situations. There's the hint of some kind of big idea or big system here uh, in operation, but I feel like we never actually get close to it, partly because these guys, maybe to their credit, actually resist making, uh, you know, strong normative prescriptions. But, you know, I actually got, you know, you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell. And, you know, these guys aren't aren't as insidious as either of the people I'm about to mention. But I also got sort of, you know, shades of, of Steven Pinker, guys like that in, in some parts of this movie. Also, uh, Thomas L. Friedman, a guy who has written about 20 books that are all based on an extremely vague idea that, you know, something big is happening uh, somewhere that there's all these exciting changes happening that you can kind of taxonomize in all these different ways. And, you know, when you kind of strip it of artifice, like he's just describing like very obvious things and he's, he's not really saying anything interesting. And a lot of times he's actually defending pretty indefensible things and doing so in these kind of unbelievably uh, convoluted metaphors that it's astonishing any editor let him get away with. Now, I got I got shades of that, although, you know, for what it's worth, I feel like Freakonomics, like Thomas L. Friedman kind of pretends to be a system builder. I don't really get the sense of any kind of attempt to build a system here. There's just these four little vignettes. Some of them offer conclusions that are a little more coherent than others or diagnoses a little more coherent than others. But in a lot of cases, you're left asking, you know, what the enterprise of Freakonomics uh, is really is really about, and I'm not I'm not sure I, I understand. It's about taking the economy and making it freaky, you know. <laughs> I actually think these guys are maybe a little bit more insidious than you're giving them credit for, and I think we'll get to that when we talk about the third segment in this documentary. But let's start with the first because it's atrocious. Each of these segments is directed by one of the leading lights of popular documentary film circa 2010, and of course, one of those. Leading lights is Mr. Morgan Spurlock. Yeah, the, the guy, the guy who found Osama bin Laden. He directs the first segment, a Roshanda by any other name. And the question posed by this one is: Can a name change a whole life? So let's say you're a mother and you're a black mother and you want to name your child Tempest after an actress who is on The Cosby Show, but you don't know how it's spelled, so you accidentally name her Temptress. Well, will that doom her to a life of sexual promiscuity, a life of crime, a life of near certain failure? Is that one R all that stands between your daughter and life as a Huxtable? And the segment, of course, backs away from that allegation, although um, it, it doesn't really reach any conclusion either. Like, uh, the, the conclusion that it sort of reaches is that uh, your name won't necessarily change your destiny, but it may impact how you are perceived. However, uh, names are very cultural. Black people have different names than white people. Ultimately, you should name your kid whatever they want, though, because... 
We all want what's best for our children. This segment starts out with this idea that's like, we're going to analyze all this data around baby names. And there's like a booming industry uh, around this. We see one Harvard professor who makes the case that actually many black people are uh, destined to a life of poverty, not because of their name, but because of something called cultural segregation, because the whole system has been built against them, not their names. And I'm, I'm looking at this and thinking, what, like th this is a shocking revelation that there are systemic injustices? <laughs> yeah, right. The, yeah, the idea of systemic injustice is presented as if it's like, you know, some kind of insight. It's like, it's like this documentary thinks that I'm a racist, that I'm just going to assume that having a black name will destine you to a life of poverty and that I've, I've never heard of such a thing as Jim Crow. Right, so it's, it starts with this premise that they're going to give you some kind of answer on this and it initially seems like it's going to be pretty sketchy answer like all this kind of weird determinism around people's names which they hint is backed up by data and then yeah they kind of like as you say swerve in the other direction where it's like actually did you know that there are systemic things and you know correlation doesn't equal causation and that kind of thing this professor dr fryer from harvard he at one point says one embodiment of cultural segregation th that's one of the few cultural items that we can really measure precisely is what you name your kid but the whole thesis of this section is that actually it's, it's, it's the one thing that you really can't measure precisely. Right. And then the, the way they tie it together in a bow at the end, you know, they, they, they have all these, they have all these anecdotes, you know, they have this one about a guy whose last name was Lane and he called his kids Winner Lane and Loser Lane. But then Loser became a cop, which I guess is supposed to be a very, you know, exciting and great career. And then Winner became a criminal. And so it's like, oh, actually maybe names uh, don't determine your destiny. And then they tie it all together in a little bow at the end by being like, well, at the end of the day, culture is a thing and, and, and different types of names are associated with different cultures. And then, you know, and the whole thing is presented in that very like chin strokey tone of profundity, but it never reaches a point of confidence where it's actually willing to give us any conclusion, although it as I said, flies uh, dangerously close to some incredibly uh, parochial cultural reductionism. The second segment, Pure Corruption by Alex Gibney, is the best segment. It looks at how corruption infiltrated the elite world of Japanese sumo wrestling and how its whistleblowers were ignored and ostracized and worse. First of all, this segment is probably the best made of them all. I mean, yeah, Al Alice Gibney is one of the best documentarians going, probably. He's the only one of the filmmakers who has a really strong visual sense. He conveys a lot by the way he shoots the sumo wrestlers. And one of its central ideas is that whistleblowers are treated harshly because they challenge not merely the corruption itself, but also the way that we view ourselves. If we think of ourselves, for example, as a fundamentally good country, and then somebody exposes us as a country that does bad things, we often resent that person. That's not a groundbreaking insight, but it's certainly one that's worth thinking about. Yeah, and you know, uh, something else that I like about this segment is that Gibney, and I guess the other people involved in the film, they tie this to, uh, you know, they draw a parallel between the, you know, the difficulties faced by whistleblowers who are trying to expose cheating in competitive sumo wrestling and, you know, high finance in the United States, where both of these things, you know, in some ways are associated with, or, you know, or at one time associated with purity and fairness and things like that. So the act of exposing corruption actually ends up imperiling these deep-seated myths about how society operates, myths that kind of allow its major institutions to function. That's a very interesting parallel to draw, but it ultimately gets at what I think, again, is a, is a limitation of this type of pop or mainstream approach to this kind of analysis. 
analyzing kind of empirical stuff, analyzing data, which allows you to uncover empirical analysis, which allows you to uncover that there are particular incentives that might encourage people to cheat, whether it's at sumo wrestling or, or in the world of high finance, that can get you some way to understanding institutions. But ultimately, you know, the film uh, stops short at asking about, you know, why, why do institutions like this uh, have power in the first place? It's like, we, it allows you to diagnose the fact that, you know, the, the reputation of high finance is sustained by a lie or by by a myth. But to me, that's only part of the journey. You know, you ultimately need a political analysis of high finance and kind of its power and the way it's integrated with other systems of power and things like that. And I, and I think that this type of analysis can't really give you that, even though it can give you lots of pretty interesting anecdotes illustrated with beautiful shots in this segment by Alex Gibney. Segment three, It's Not Always a Wonderful Life by Eugene Jaraki opens by noting that the crime rate in the United States, which rose and rose throughout the 70s and 80s, suddenly dropped in the 90s. Why did this happen? The press cited a number of possible reasons. A strong economy, harsher sentencing, a decline in the crack epidemic, more police on the streets, more innovative policing, but all of these explanations are, according to economist Stephen Levitt, inadequate. For example, there were sweeping law enforcement changes in New York under Giuliani, and crime did fall under him, but Levitt suggests that crime was already falling at a similar rate everywhere, and the downturn started before Giuliani. So what could the real reason be? Well, Levitt proposes that it is at least partly the legacy of the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. He brings up Romania under Ceausescu, where after abortion was outlawed, the birth rate rose dramatically, as did the number of unwanted children with troubled upbringings. So, in America, after Roe v. Wade in 1973, a generation of unwanted children were not born. And thus, 20 years later, when they would have reached peak crime-committing age... Which that, which that is the phrase used in the film. That's not, those are not Will, Will's <laughs> words, I just want to make clear. Uh, they, they simply were not alive to commit those crimes. Now, there is uh, something about this line of thinking that bothers me a lot. I mean, what are the reasons that children are unwanted? One of the overwhelmingly obvious ones is that people cannot afford them. The film argues that these children would have been born in inhospitable households, in crumbling inner cities, in weakening heartland and rust belt states. Again, these are th their words, not Will's. And though he does not exactly say this, the implication, the unmistakable implication is, given how bad these conditions would have been for them, isn't it maybe good that they weren't born? Now, the segment postures that it's just laying out the hard truths. It's not advocating for or against abortion. Levitt claims that he's not targeting any group by race or class. And in fact, Eugene Jarecki knows what he's doing because to narrate the segment, he hired Melvin Van Peebles, a very legendary and radical African-American filmmaker. But the logical conclusion of this line of thinking is, wouldn't it be great if those poor people, black and white, would, would just stop breeding rather than how can we maybe seek to eliminate the poverty? 
that might have led to this generation of alleged criminals. And I think it's conclusions like that that indicate why Stephen Levitt actually is a pretty insidious figure, because he postures as being this like really curious guy. He's like, well, well, let's think differently. Let's look at let's look at the other side of the system. But he's so willfully incurious in other ways, and all of his kooky, counterintuitive thinking always just serves to uphold whatever the bad system is. He doesn't really ruffle any feathers with this, uh, or institutional feathers with this line of inquiry. Yeah, and you know, it should be said, there's, you know, there's been a pretty significant empirical debate, which we're really in no position to analyze, which, you know, has come in the wake of, uh, of these claims. For what it's worth, I mean, I just think there are so many variables around a broad social phenomenon like crime or something like that. I don't know, offering these kind of holistic explanations is very unconvincing. But as you say, it also, and there's a number of points in this film, not just in this segment, that gets very close to kind of really ugly, you know, eugenic kind of, rhetoric. Yeah, cu- culture of poverty stuff. I didn't, I didn't mention it, but in the first segment, uh, there's a really awful scene, you know, where they're talking about different names. Uh, and, you know, they're talking about like the market value of different names that are popular among women with different racial backgrounds. And there's and you're sort of like noting the de- the decline in the, the stock, alleged decline in the stock of the name Ashley. And for some reason, it shoots to this kind of can strip club scene where the dancers have name tags like Misty and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I would say this film uh, flirts, at least, with some pretty ugly tropes. And, you know, some of the data that they use, there's one of the many little infographics that you see on the screen where it says, in states where abortions are easily available, there was a 30% greater crime drop than in states where abortion was merely legal but not easily accessible. And, I mean, abortion is just one of a broad tapestry of issues that would affect a number like that. And... The filmmakers know it. And so, like, is this data, are you just presenting me the hard, objective data, or are you not? The final segment is called, Can You Bribe a Ninth Grader to Succeed? And this one is directed by Rachel Grady and Heidi Ewing, who previously gave us Jesus Camp. And this one wasn't so bad, you know. It's uh, pretty innocuous as far as it goes. It's it's at least a proper documentary that some work was put into, and it's not just jerry-rigged around some kind of, like, dumb pop thesis. Yeah, so this is a kind of uh, small-scale social experiment where they try to provide economic incentives to raise children's grades. So your children in ninth grade, and so, you know, there's various uh, monetary rewards given for, you know, if you raise your grades up to a certain level, they create a lot of fanfare around it which is part of the incentive so you know you don't just get money you get it in the form of a giant you know novelty check you get to ride home in a hummer and this documentary follows two students from working class backgrounds both of them sort of underachievers at school one of them despite the incentives does not have an uptick in his grades the other one does have an uptick not a massive uptick but as he points out not incorrectly Going from D's to B's is really hard work. Yeah, and so again, you know, this one was amusing enough to watch, but I'm not sure what the thesis or the conclusion is. Like, what is the what is the result of the, this experiment? It's like it sometimes works and other times it, it doesn't work. If somebody were to ask me, can you increase students' test scores by giving them a financial incentive? My knee-jerk answer would be, of course. First of all, the whole point of doing well in school is because there's a long-term financial incentive to it. You know, you do well in school, you get to go to a good university, and then you get to have a comfortable career. Now, if you are from a low-income background, 
you probably recognize that you have limited opportunity for class mobility. And you might say, well, what's the incentive for this? Why am I here? So I would assume it would seem intuitive that giving them some sort of financial incentive, whether it's a short-term $50 novelty check or more holistically, a better quality of life that would prepare them more easily to go to a good university and, and get a good job. Like These are factors that have a lot to do with whether or not a student is successful at school even though we only see two examples in this documentary, which taken together are not all that helpful. We got to each pick kind of what we wanted to talk about. And I just had my son. At that point, my son was probably about a year and a half, two years old. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book called A Rashonda by Any Other Name, which, you know, is all about this idea of does, does a name really impact what will happen to your child? Or does it impact you? There is definitely a distinction between names for white people and names for black people. Maria, Mary, Billy, Becky, Malik, Shamika, Shaquem, you know, Oprah is popular. I think, uh, I think names do matter. I think names do make a big difference because it, it'll make a difference in terms of how people judge you, snap judgments. Well, there are a lot of very interesting debates around the idea of incentives, which, you know, if there is a core to free economics, it seems like uh, incentives is really it. There are a lot more interesting kinds of inquiries you can do, a lot more interesting discussions of, of, you know, the broad idea of incentives. And I think this film offers one of the most interesting classes I ever took in university was this class called Markets, Justice and the Human Good, you know, where we studied everything from uh, John Rawls and his, uh, you know, landmark work, A Theory of Justice, to kind of right-wing critiques of Rawls and, you know, everything in between, also left-wing critiques of Rawls. So there, you know, there have been a lot of very interesting debates and not just in the realm of empirical social science around incentives, also in the domain of you know, political theory and political philosophy. But I think in the last 20 years or so, maybe 25 years, I mean, certainly since the 1980s and since the neoliberal revolution, the idea of kind of market incentives for things, you know, it's often presented as a sort of politically neutral thing, given that the market is just framed as a sort of natural, you know, the natural order of things anyway. When you create incentives within it, you're really just, you know, bringing all of us as good little rational economic units kind of closer to nature. You know, that's kind of that's kind of the implication. But as I uh, as I argued in a piece that has actually never been published, I'm hoping it'll be in a book soon. There's a real undercurrent and has been, I think, since the very beginning, you know, not just since kind of the Clinton Blair era, but before that as well with Reagan and Thatcher. It's a very kind of uh, elitist and, and kind of paternal instinct that you sometimes find around the idea of incentives, particularly when they're discussed in relation to public policy. So not just kind of in theoretical terms, but as, you know, things that can guide public policy. I don't know if we ever talked about the idea of nudging on this show. It's this idea that briefly was considered sort of the intellectual heart of uh, Obamaism, you know, after 2008, 2009. If you go back to kind of what was being written, you know, in the press at that time, there was a lot of triumphalism around all kinds of things in the early Obama era. But around the concept of nudging, I mean, some of the writing about this stuff was so unbelievably effusive. You know, and it it was framed as this kind of revolutionary fusion of like Reagan, and the New Deal. So it's a very kind of third way-ish idea. You know, it was an idea associated with uh, Cass Sunstein, among others, who was kind of a house intellectual in the early Obama era. And basically, you know, it's framed around this very sort of neoliberal conceit that the state can't and shouldn't, you know, make people do anything. You know, I guess that the market and people's bosses and whatever, they can do that, that's fine. But the state can't do that at all. Because that's paternalistic. That's anti-freedom. But what it can do is it can nudge people in the right direction. And so, you know, a popular example that I remember, you know, was like, uh, well, you know, you can't make people sign up for a particular 
you know, let's say it's pensioners, you can't make them sign up for a particular plan. But what you can do is automatically sign them up. You can you can have your your wonks and your experts determine what is the best plan for them, and then they just have the option to opt out and you know maybe pick pick another plan if they want. You know, one that's less good for them. And so, you know, you can already kind of see in that, I mean, that's just like one very kind of banal example of this, but you already see in that, that there's this, there is this implicit paternalism in what is supposed to be an anti-paternalistic idea, because there's this implicit assumption that wonks and experts have the necessary data and evidence to determine, you know, what's best for people. And, you know, I talk about this a lot more in a kind of, you know, three or 4,000 word essay that is yet to be published. But I think if you go back to the early years of neoliberalism, you can actually see how both the kind of conservative and liberal variants of it have a subtext of some kind that is actually very paternalistic. It's rooted in, the, in these ideas about a kind of morally defective underclass that needs to be, you know, prodded in a particular direction. And you saw that, I think, in the in the Clinton era, especially. An anecdote that I, I found for the piece, I, I didn't I didn't actually know this because I, I never properly uh, listened to the speech, but you know, everybody remembers this famous speech where Bill Clinton, you know, the State of the Union address, he gets up and he, and he said, you know, the era of big government is over, right? You know, basically consolidating the Reagan revolution in, in real time. If you go through the rest of the speech, there's all this stuff where he's talking about the need for, for V-chips and VCRs, I guess, you know, in, in TVs to kind of control programming so children will only see, you know, the most wholesome programming. There's a weird part where he's kind of appealing to studio executives and asking them to make content that's, you know, more morally upright for, you know, people to consume. And then, of course, you know, later you have the whole end of welfare as we know it, which was the phrase du jour. Which, you know, the, the Clintonites were so excited that they were going to use the welfare system, you know, they're going to they're change it to a, a system of workfare, which was less about providing welfare, it was less a kind of social safety net idea, than it was a system which they proudly boasted was going to make people work. You know, and there were also some pretty uh, racist ideas around that as well. Now, I don't think it ever happened, but but Sunstein, Cass Sunstein, um, you know, who, who branded the philosophy libertarian paternalism, you know, he worked as, a, as an official pretty high up in the, uh, the Office of Management and Budget in the Obama administration. He actually pushed for the creation of something called a Council of Psychological Advisors, uh, and that was going to have a mandate to figure out, quote, when people could benefit from a nudge. So I thought about this again, partly because uh, I was revisiting the essay, which I hope to publish soon, but also because bits of Freakonomics actually kind of recalled it for me. I think there are a lot of very interesting debates and discussions that I've encountered around incentives, whether you're talking about financial or economic incentives, moral incentives, or other kinds of incentives. But I think as kind of currency in a lot of mainstream discourse, they have a pretty sketchy history. And every time I hear a centrist talking about incentives, it sets off alarm bells. You know, the word incentive can mean many things. It can refer to many different kinds of things. But when I hear it, you know, I inevitably think of things like the 2018 uh, teacher strike in West Virginia, where, you know, part of the background was that the state government had tried to change the health plan for public sector workers. And it had given teachers, uh, it told them to download this mobile fitness app that was called Go365. Uh, this was from a company called Humana Inc., a company which branded itself as a wellness vendor. Hard to think of a more dystopian phrase than that. And, and basically, this app was going to let uh, it was going to let the teachers earn uh, points for different physical activities in order to qualify for their health plans. When I hear the word incentives in a lot of contexts these days, I just think of stuff like that, you know, like dystopian surveillance of workers managed by a for-profit private corporation that forces them to wear Fitbits so they can qualify for something that should be a right anyhow. I've got 
£90,000 in my pyjamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing like a newly minted pound. Everyone must hanker for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go round.